you got your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. For the last few weeks, we've been going through our continued verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. And we're calling these, this last four weeks, we've called it Confessions. Would you say that out with me? One, two, three, Confessions. And there's really four things we're looking at verse by verse through chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. And four weeks ago, we looked at the confession of what we see. And secondly, we looked at the confession of what we say. And last week, we looked at the confession of what we know. Today, we're going to look at the final part of our series entitled, The Confession of What We Have. So I want you to turn your books to the book of Mark. And if you got it with you right now, would you stand with me in the reading of God's word? And I want us to dive into this word and see how Mark is inspired by the Lord to breathe out and pen these uh, verses on top of these pages. In verse 34 of chapter 8 of Mark, Paul pens these words of Jesus and calling the crowd to him. With his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Say it again. Deny himself and what? Take up his cross and what? Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will what? Save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in the adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. God, thank you for your coolness this morning. Thank you for your ua, your rain. Thank you that there is not a separate God that controls this rain, or goddess, or gods, plural, but only one God calls out this rain into existence this morning. We believe it's the same God that is speaking to his disciples in this crowd. So God, I pray that you would speak to us. Be near us, Lord Jesus. Comfort us. Convict us. Conform us. In the mighty name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's Ohana says, Amen. You may be seated. I've been reading a book called The Hawaii's Missionary Saga by an author named LaRue Piercy. And he shares accounts of history of the missionaries who brought the gospel to the kingdom of Hawaii in the early 1800s, all the way to the overflow, the overthrow of 1891. One of them was the beloved Titus Cohen. Anybody remember Titus Cohen, right? We talk about him continuously. We've done his study last summer, the book of Titus. But uh, the man, Kahu Titus Cohen, uh, led the great church that we know of today, the highly Christian church. God used this man in the great Hawaiian awakening when Hawaii was known as a Christian kingdom. However, right before his life ended, Titus Cohen states some challenging numbers regarding the Christian faith in the kingdom of Hawaii around this 1800 
late 1800 time period. And I want you to see what Titus Cohen says right here up on the screen in the book called Hawaii Missionary Saga. Hawaii's Missionary Saga. It says, nearly all of the native pastors have been slack in church discipline. I want you to hear this. Indiscriminate in receiving to church communion. And remiss in looking after wandering members. So that our church statistics are in so confused a state as to be past remedy. I want you to hear these numbers. Out of more than 70,000 people who have been received to the churches. Specifically, these are Hawaiians we're talking about, right? Native Hawaiians. Out of the 70,000 in this 50-year span, our report returns to us that only 7,459 Native Hawaiians, or about one in every 10 people, have been received to the church. Meaning, the only leftover genuine followers of Christ up to this moment in the late 1800s came from 70,000 to 7,400. That should break your heart today. Because the reality is not much has changed today. Let's make it personal. Let's talk about Ohana Church. Did you know since we've, since my wife and I started a Bible study at, Bayf- uh, at Heleon Bus Stop. Till now. You guys want to hear the number of how many people came in and out of this church? Over a thousand people. Alright. You know how much people we've baptized? Over 130 people. I've done the numbers this week. You know how much people confess, wrote on cards that they believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Over 600 people. And so it's true today, we can agree with Kahutaitis Cohen, that our statistics are staggering. It's complex. It does not really make sense. And so there is a truth that we can define, not just in our generation, But the generation of Titus Cohen, whose generation was much harder because they came in a generation where true heathenism and paganism existed of the day. In the book, it says that Hawaiian mothers and fathers would allow their four, five, six-year-old children to practice intercourse with their aunties and uncles under their, their hale. They would practice it. And you may be, oh, that's shock. It's still happening today. As a kahu, that's one of the hardest parts I have to deal with is people are still engaging in sin when they've clearly heard the gospel and there was a part in their life that they showed some fruit in their life. That Jesus looked awesome and glorious and then life just smacks them in the face and not identifying it what the gospel has called it, which is sin, depravity, right? And so they keep going and going and going and going and sooner or later it says even the native pastors have neglected the gospel. The native, me, the Kanaka, me, my, my Ohana, my bloodline, my Koko, they for slacked on church discipline. They were indiscriminating of those who were taking communion. Meaning anybody could take communion. Even if they didn't understand what it meant. They were not taking care of the body of Christ. 
Today, they weren't emailing, texting, calling the people who were away from the fail to encourage them, to inspire them, to see where they are. They just stopped all alone because they forsake the gospel. Now, we believe, right, as Baptists and as Christians, the Bible teaches genuine salvation reproduces genuine glorification. All right, we mean that once saved, always saved. We really believe that because we believe the work of salvation has nothing to do with what we bring to the table, but it has everything to do with what God has done for man. And so if God is in complete control of salvation, the question is not can God, if God can, if, if we can lose our salvation, the real question should be can God lose a Christian? And based on his sovereignty, he cannot lose any he's chosen. To say that he can lose someone is to say that his salvation wasn't sufficient. Therefore, you deitize God and you become like Romans 1 where he says they traded a, they traded something pure for a lie. Therefore, God gave them over to their rapidated minds, right? And that's what's happening here. May we never forget that the gospel we preach is bigger than the gospel that just plants seeds, but it grows and it blossoms because what God starts, he completes to the very end. I am confident of this, that he who began a new work in me will perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus' return, right? Look, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he is the author and finisher of the gospel. That's the gospel we preach. There'll be some people that walk away. There'll be some people that come back. Nevertheless, if we believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can say that they, they will be people at the end that will endure because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because of what they brought to the table. Therefore, Jesus, getting back to the gospel of Mark, is dealing with similar people. People who have experienced the Torah, the Old Testament, the prophecies, and maybe some of them have walked away from the truth of God's word. And now he's clarifying to a crowd of people what it means to come into intimate fellowship with him. Thank God that he calls us to intimate fellowship, right? Glory to God. Look at the reality truth. It says that the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been a message of our personal convenience or being comfortable. Let me say that again because some of you hothead in here, there's a layer that needs to be cut through. All right, let me say it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ has never been a message of our personal convenience or being comfortable. Now, now this is talking to me, Zeke, as a pastor on the flip side, the one who is called to love people in their junk in their midst right it has always been about deep-rooted convictions and truths that is only discovered through who christ right the journey of faith will always encounter suffering and challenges but remember that jesus promises peace in a world filled with error can you embrace that this morning so here's really two two monaos for you today Two truths about of our confession of what we have. And it's really joyous because listen to me. Number one, we have a gospel worth living for. Say that with me. One, two, three. We have a gospel worth living for. Remember the gospel, right? That, that word evangel, that we get for evangelism, to share the truth, to share the message. And why is this gospel worth living for? Well, the answer is simply this, because Jesus calls us, To a redeemed life in him. 
I want you to read that statement, write that answer. One, two, three. Because Jesus calls us to a redeemed life in him. Look at these verses. Right after Jesus just Pauhana scolding Peter last week, right? Peter had the audacity and the nerve to tell the God of the universe, I rebuke you, Jesus. Right? I mean, Peter was pretty lost to think that he can condemn the creator of the universe, right? And he corrects Peter. After he corrects Peter, now Jesus not just brings his disciples, but he brings a crowd who was hanging out with his disciples. What does this mean? This means the gospel wasn't made for you to be isolated. The gospel was made for you to share with people. And so Jesus calls this crowd and these disciples to follow him. To come into intimate fellowship with him. Like when people come 6.30 every morning, Sunday morning, to come set up. They're, they're coming alongside each other, working in the gospel together, living life together. This is the same life that we're seeing in these verses. They're living day by day, moment by moment, living life together. And the God of the universe in his grace and in his mercies calls to sinners. Come. You hear that? You heard that? Let's talk like cavemen this morning, all right? Everybody put your hand on your heart and say, me, me. sinful, sinful. Me. me, need me. Jesus. Jesus. All right? Now, 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 all right, I want you to hear this very, very close. I want you to dig deep into this. The Savior of the world, who would be just to send every one of you and me to hell even today. He would be just to send everybody to hell today. In his sovereign grace and his sovereign mercy, the Savior of the world takes on man's flesh, becoming flesh on earth here, and he calls sinners to himself. That is beautiful. That is ono. That is good. Right? Look at it. He says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me, my sake, and the gospel's sake, will what? Save it. Jesus is giving a clear call to a disgruntled crowd, right, about following him. And sometimes we're in situation in our lives where Jesus is calling, but get some distractions going on. And Jesus makes it very evident. You know how Jesus models discipline? Through the people closest to him. He disciplines Peter last week. Right? And then with his disciples, you know the disciples felt a little bit, you know, felt a little bit sinful in that moment too. Because they know Peter was just louder than them. Right? Peter just said what everybody was. We got some of those in this church, right? In, this, in our lives, Right? I mean, that's the reality. Then Jesus, like, gives a great, great presentation. And he says, if you desire me, like, if you genuinely desire me, I mean, this is what it looks like for you to follow me. This is the, listen to me, this is not the initiation. This is the result. The initiation is me calling you. The result is you following what I said, your response. And so there's three things we see in these verses. Number one, personal denial. The word deny. As used in this text, that you must deny yourself, is used only 11 times in the New Testament. 
To deny yourself means to reject yourself. And Jesus says for us to desire him, we must not desire ourselves. We must literally reject ourselves. Now, don't let the world pervert this for you. Because I deal with youth for many years, even adults. And one of the things we see with youth and adults who have insecurity issues in their life, specifically who don't come from church backgrounds, they cut themselves. This is not meaning to reject yourself by hurting yourself, by killing yourself, by suicidal. It's talking about rejecting the inner part of you. What is the inner part of you? Your sin, your pride, your arrogance, your haughtiness, your rejection of the gospel. He says to reject everything that is in you. So, so this sounds through the understanding of the biblical gospel that the biblical gospel is about us decreasing and Jesus what? Increasing. We see that in John 3. In Colossians 1, it says that the gospel is about the glory of Christ and not the glory of man. But you would see that a lot of your posts on social media, I would question it because it's more man-centered than it is Christ-centered. For instance, there was a great friend of mine who I thought was sounding doctrine. She posted on top of her stuff that everybody needs a David in them to slay giants. You know that is heresy, right? Okay, I want you to hear this again. Everybody needs a David in them. Uh, no, 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 no. But listen to me. Listen to me before we say that. What David are we talking about? Are we talking about teenager David? Or are we talking about middle age, older David? Older. What happened? He, she, he killed a husband. He killed a woman's husband just to have intercourse with her. Sexual relationship with her. So what, what David are we talking about inside of us? We're talking about the sinful David. Because there is no one, listen to me, to say that we need someone in the Old Testament who is human, just like me and you, right? To be just like them is heresy in front of a holy God. We don't need a David in us. He died. He kicked the bucket. He never rose again. Last time I remember. We need Christ in us. We need Jesus. We don't even need a better me. Oh, they reject that. Deny that. Look, he says, he said, deny yourself. Going on, it says, the Bible, the gospel talks about the great name of the Lord, not the great name of Zeke or Ohana Church. The gospel in Psalms 11 says that it talks about the righteousness of our Lord, not the righteousness of any of us in this room. In Matthew 6, it talks about, the gospel talks about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. We see a consistent theme if we see Genesis to Revelation. And this is that the gospel is about, say it out loud, Jesus. It's Jesus. Another word for personal denial is the doctrine of repentance. Not remorsefulness. Repentance. The doctrine of repentance teaches that its main purpose is to change someone's mind that results into a changed heart and changed action. Paul states in Acts 20, he said, I preach that they should repent And turn to God, and listen to me, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now I want you to see that. This is Paul's heart, all right? Paul, oh, it's not on the screen. But it's found, it's paraphrased in Acts 26, 20. Paul is saying, the way we see genuine repentance is based on how genuine believers live their lives from the moment they met Jesus. Are you with me? 
So I believe there is a repentance for justification, right? This is the conversion. You heard the gospel clearly. It may have been a process of hearing the gospel clearly, never the case. But eventually when you heard the gospel, your heart was, 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 was pricked, was cut. Then you responded with the gospel because of repentance. And you ask God for forgiveness and you embrace that gospel. That is what I call a repentance of justification or regeneration as well. But there's also a continual repentance of sanctification. Where every day we are in personal denial. We're rejecting who we are as individuals and in the flesh. And we're embracing Jesus. You do know every day changes your mind and motives, right? Why? Because we're people of feelings, of emotions. Hey, but sometimes I pass gas, I feel better. But doesn't mean my heart is still not dirty. Does that make sense? I don't know how much else to layman term that, brother, sister, all right? It's the reality. It starts with personal denial. This is a sign of genuine salvation. Let's look at a few different followers of Christ throughout the years that confess repentance as necessary for the gospel. Dr. Henry Ironsides, who resided and wrote a book in 1937, said the doctrine of repentance is the missing note in any, in many otherwise orthodox and fundamental sound circles today. This unwillingness to preach repentance is an emerging essay today think about it right like like this is not a very popular doctrine to confront people in their sin and tell them that they're sinful who do you think you are right we live in a day and age where you don't step on people's toe and and we live in a day when you disagree with somebody that means you guys cannot have fellowship no listen to this is pivotal for the christian walk Let's go all the way back to 150 A.D. to a philosopher and scholar named Clement. And he says this, that let, not, let us not merely call him Lord, for that will not save us. For he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. But he who does what is right. Can I get a witness there, right? Thus, brothers, let us acknowledge him by our actions. This world and the world to come are two enemies. His one means adultery, corruption, avarice, and deceit. While the others give them up, we cannot then be friends of both. To get this one, you must give up the other. This is also your circle of friends. But you say, well, but we're supposed to preach the gospel. We should... Yes. But listen to me. If they reject it, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. Oh, well, that's not genuine love. That's not... What you, what, you know what is, I'll tell you what, you know what don't make sense? That God would even give his grace to sinners like you and me. That does not make sense to me. Like, like how much we've sinned and defiled a holy God and that he's patient. And you know why that doesn't make sense to me? Because I'm not God. And I will never be God. That's what makes the doctrines of grace even more pure. And better. That while we was at our worst, God gave us his best. Let's go. Let's move up to the 1500s of the Reformation. Where Martin Luther says in 1517. Repent. Meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. That may our lives not demonstrate pride. But may our lives demonstrate humility. And that if there is pride in our hearts. That God would do what he 
does faithfully to those who are chosen by him, he would humble them. It's a sign of God when we are broken. It's a sign of God when we don't understand the totality of life. If a sign of God when we don't understand our emotions or how our kids act, amen? Spouses, even you, right? It's a sign of God that God would do anything less but humble us. Why? Because God cannot use a proud person in it of himself. So the question is, has this been your understanding of self-denial? If it is, then we'll move on to the second part. Jesus says, take up your cross. And that means personal humility. The world looks at humility as a position of weakness. But the Lord looks at it as a posture of strength. Why? Because humility is a picture of Jesus. The God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He humbled himself to a God-forsaken earth, took on flesh on our behalf, lived a perfect, sinless life, right? Then took the cross for, for you and me. I was wondering, why, why do we see so much false Christianity in our culture and context? One main issue is that we live in, in an entitled society. I mean, think about it, right? We think we deserve everything. We deserve better jobs. We deserve better pay. We deserve better homes. You may not say it, but I can promise you that's the issue. What is the second issue why we've seen a false fallacy in Christianity in our context today? You guys ready? Hope you guys ready. Because the American life is much easier to live than the Middle Eastern life. Right? Could you imagine our brothers and sisters of the kingdom of God in Iran, in China, who are meeting in places and hidden, and they can't sing as loud and proud. They can't pray out loud like we're doing because their whole congregation will be caught. And it's not that they're not bold and that they're ashamed of Jesus. They understand not everybody in that fellowship knows Jesus yet. And so their faithfulness is not gimmicks or shows like America has put off with the charismatic movement. All right? But the heart of the gospel is that people will be changed by the washing of the word and not the washing of mysticism. Could you imagine? Could you imagine us just meeting in an upper room or a lower room and singing, right? Like, oh, so are you weary? And trouble, no light in the darkness you see. And they can't talk louder than this. They can't even use a guitar or ukulele or a piano or drums because right outside of that door is a group of people that are waiting to annihilate that fellowship. Are you with me? Our Chinese brothers and sisters who are humbled, right? They're humbled by what, what persecution has done in their life. And we hear words of Jesus when he says in Matthew 5, Blessed are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. All right, look, look at what verse 35 says. It says, in the idea of personal humility, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That's a prideful individual. Well, look at the humble person. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will what? Save it. He will save it. Taking up the Lord's cross is a symbol of nothing else but humility. To take up the cross of Christ is to prove our devotion to him through the gospel. But not initially, responsively. Why? Because Jesus demonstrates this to us. It's the reflection of the instrument that was used, or for them, that was going to be used to punish our humble Savior for the sins that not he had committed, but you hath committed. God is calling people to a life of humility. Look at what James 4 says about this. He says, but he, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but give grace to the what? Humble. Lastly, the reason we have a gospel we're living for is because Jesus calls us to a relationship that is empowered by biblical faith. So we have personal denial, we have personal humility, and lastly, we have personal faith. When Jesus told the crowd to follow him, this meant for us to completely trust him. This trust leads into that, the, that the biblical words of the justification of faith. That is shared in Romans 4 and 5. But I want you to see what R.C. Sproul says about this doctrine. It says, in our justification, faith is the means by which we are linked to Christ and receive the benefits of his saving work. Justification by faith alone is merely shorthand for justification by the righteousness of Christ alone. This should encourage you today because the Lord has justified you Not simply and solely by your faith in him, but Christ's righteousness in you. This is called imputation. That God didn't save you simply because you chose him. You choosing him and responding to him and deciding whatever terminology you want to use in this uh, this systematic, whatever, systematic world, whatever it is, right? Listen to me. You have gotten faith because God has given you his righteousness. Apart from his righteousness, there is no faith. God, in his sovereignty, has justified you by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. God, Jesus, man God, God in the flesh, he has done something that no other God could have done today for you and me. No other sacrifice of a human or a bull could do for you and me. God, Jesus, he has given you righteousness based on what he has done on the cross for you, what he did in the burial for you, what he did on his resurrection for you, what he did on his ascension back into every, and what he would do someday when he come back to revitalize the church that's the God we serve that's the God we honor even if San Francisco may lose today we know that's not going to happen right but if they do thank God we're not justified by 49ers or wannabe chiefs right thank God that we're justified by the righteousness of God through justification of faith through Jesus. If football dies, praise the Lord. God reigns forever, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the joy. I know we're laughing at it, but is that true? 
We're justified by His righteousness. Therefore, we're justified by our faith in Him. In other words, the merit of Christ and only His merit is sufficient to satisfy the demands of God's justice. Let me say that again. Because for some of you theological, illiterate, illiterate people like me, when you need to hear this part 20 times, I have to read this 20 times literally this way. It says, in other words, the merit of Christ, the work of Christ, and only by His merit, is sufficient to satisfy the demands of God's justice. This merit of Jesus Christ is given to us through faith. When Jesus told the crowd to follow him, he was telling them to trust in him alone. And I want you to hear faith in God versus faith in the church. Many of us have been deceived by putting our trust in the church. Now listen to me. And though I love the church, for it is the body of Christ, amen, It encourages me. Does it encourage you? It challenges me. Does it challenge you? But listen to me. The church cannot do one thing that only Jesus can do for me. You ready? Save me. The Catholics have gotten it wrong. It's not the authority of the church. It's the authority of the scriptures. The church is not the authority of God's Lord or Godhood, whatever you want to say, right? It's the scriptures. Why? Because it's breathed out by God himself. So this is why you have to have a proper understanding of the church. You ready? They're filled with sinners just like you. They're filled with hypocrites just like you. So if one of your reasons is that we're not going to church because get hypocrites, you fit the category, join the church. Hello, am I preaching to the choir this morning? No more choir, so you are the choir today. Right? Don't trust in the church. Thank God for the church. But don't trust to put all your energies, efforts, everything in the church. Well, Kahu Zeke said so. Well, that's heresy already. I'm hoping that you're taking this word home with you, and then you're looking at it for yourself, right? You're not just trusting me with it. Every pastor should say this. Right? At the end of the day, right? I don't justify your faith. I don't justify your righteousness. Don't trust me. You can honor me, just like how God tells each other to honor each other and all that. But don't trust in me. Trust in Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Look at Romans 5. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of our God. Right? Listen to me. Through him, we have got access. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Through him. But I will say this. Listen to me. If you're looking to him, then it will not be hard to come alongside of other church people. All right? If you're looking to him, you have to go through seasons where, man, man, it's just hurtful. I get it. Right? But look to him. Eventually, what is on your heart, God promises on the hearts of his church. And listen to me. Though the church is not the authority of our lives, it is the base in which Christ will reach the world. The church is the only institute, the only vehicle, the only springboard, the only platform 
that Christ will use to reach the world. This is why we have been rethinking par or pair church partnerships as a church in the last couple of years. Because what happens with other organizations that call themselves Christians, many of them aren't involved in a local church. And they would call themselves a pair church, a nonprofit organization, but they don't function like a church. They function like the world. Especially if they take grants from the government. Let me be very clear. As long as I get breath to speak to you today, may our justification, because of what Christ has done, not because of what we bring to the table. Even in our faith itself, it comes from God. Romans 2.8. It's a gift from him that we get to steward and trust in him for all eternity. This is a gospel worth living for. Secondly, we Pawana. We have a gospel worth dying for. Say that with me. One, two, three. We have a gospel worth dying for. Reading on in verse 36. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of the Father with the holy angels. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus tells us that we must deny ourselves to follow him. In verse 36 to 38, he talks about what it means to deny him and the gospel. So you have one side, this is what it means to follow Christ. On the other side, this is what it means to follow the world. Right? He uses prophet in the world to describe this world-loving generation. Or as he puts, this adulterous and sinful generation. The world and the gospel teaches two different things, right? The world is in competition with our souls. The world wants, our, even as Christian, the world wants our joy. The world wants to steal anything that belongs to God. But the one thing the world cannot give to us is salvation. The world takes, the world does not give. Are you, you guys with me? Jesus says, for what can a man give in return of his soul? This, sampler is e- this answer is easy, as we said earlier, nothing. Biblically, the man is not even owner of his own soul today. The owner of man's soul is Satan. It's Lucifer. It says in Ephesians 2 that he's the, fathers of the, he's the father of the sons of disobedience. In fact, the man's soul either belongs to Satan or it belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus is making it very clear with his disciples and these crowds. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to follow the world. Now I want you to see this. Following me has to do with an acknowledgement of what I've done, not what you've done. Following the world has to do with an acknowledgement of what you have done. That's why you're going that direction. Are you seeing the two different directions? Number one is grace given. Number two is works given. Right? And so we're at a crossroads today, right? The crossroads is this, is your understanding of theology through these verses grace given or works given? Is what you're doing with your children and with your marriage and with with everything you do, is it grace given or is it works given? I can promise you, you guys who have kids in sports, like me too, right? I can promise you, 99.9% of them will not make it to the NFL, right? 
I can tell you this, but 100% of them will come before the throne of God. They will be judged. Whether you like it or not, they will be judged. So for us who believe in the true gospel, who, who knows that this gospel is worth living for, it's also worth dying for. May, may we never be people who are comfortable with just sitting in the same seats every Sunday. But may we be people who are, who are who is desperate for the gospel to go beyond further than we could ever imagine. And look, there's really two kinds of people in this world. Number one, there's the deceptive of, there's the deception of truth people. These are people who are captivated by the temporary riches of this world, just like this verse says, as well as influenced by the challenges of the world. Their theology and doctrines are based on what the world gives or takes away from them, right? Their lifestyles are in accordance with their preference of their flesh. These are people who are deceived. But secondly, we have the right people, the receptive of truth people. They receive truth. These are people who belong to God. They see God as being completely in control. Amen? Completely in control. They see the world as temporary issues, but also a place with glorious missional opportunities. We know this to be true because Jesus says in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's an application truth. All right, listen to me. It would be Paul. May our confession be a confession of bold faith that proclaims and magnifies the nature and presence of our living God. You will endure hardships when you follow Christ. But it's a gospel worth dying for. You will be irritated by people in your life. Let me change that too. You will irritate people in your life too. This is not just all about you. We all fall short of God's grace. And there's really two responses. We're either going to be people who are deceived or we're going to be people who receive. So are you going to be a person deceived by fallacy or are you going to reach, uh, receive truth from Christ alone? I want you to meditate on these words, not because of we have a relationship together and you trust what? No, trust scripture. This is what Jesus says to us, right? May our confession be a confession of bold faith that proclaims and magnifies the nature and the presence of our living God. Why? Because we have a gospel worth living for and we have a gospel worth dying for. This is the confession of our faith today. If we learned anything in these four weeks about God's goodness, it's that this, that God will fulfill what he started in us, right? To the glory of his name. We're going to receive joy. We're going to receive comfort. That's why he says that peace I leave with you. Not the same kind of peace the world gives, but the completed peace we have in Christ alone. He even says in his earthly prayer before he went on the cross, he said, I will leave you in the world. They're not going to love you, brother, sister, because they do not know me. But you do know me. Therefore, my God, I'm going to ask my father to sanctify you in truth. Or another word for sanctify is to wash, literally, physically wash you with truth. What do we do with that? Well, there's only one way to respond. And for us, we're going to practice the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask our team to come up. And this is what I want you to see. 
When you hear the truth of God's gospel today, do you understand the gospel is about God rescuing you? And secondly, do you understand that the gospel is not about just rescuing you, but the gospel is all about being with you and transforming you until the day you see Jesus? Because if that is the truth today, we have a reason to celebrate.